Tonight's reading is taken from Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 35. This can be found on page 1045 in the Bibles, and it's also on the screen. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will make them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nigel. Good evening. Good evening. Great to see everyone this evening. I grew up watching the boat race on the television, and for some reason I always supported Oxford. That was always the team. Do I hear any... Oh, no. Cambridge, no. It always, always... Always has to be, we've got an Oxford man down here, always has to be Oxford. And, and never did I think when I was younger that one day I would also have an opportunity to, to row in an Oxford boat race. And a few years ago, I had the privilege to go through the back door of the Church of England into Oxford. I wouldn't have got there by academic merit alone. I had to go through. The, actually, it's a great incentive to get ordained and become a vicar. You get to go to <laughs> Oxford 
But it was, a, it was a great time, and I had the opportunity whilst at Oxford to row, and I rowed for Queen's College, um, and then to trial for the heavyweight boat race that was starting, trials were starting on the 1st of September two years ago. And so I had three months to prepare, to get ready for these trials. It was a five-kilometer test that was going to take place, and, and I, about an hour and 20 minutes every day on the rowing machine. I tell you, if you've been on the rowing machine, it's the most boring thing. An hour and 20 minutes on the rowing machine. Six days a week. Even when I went on holiday to Greece for a week with my wife, Anna, I, I woke up at five o'clock in the morning and spent an hour and a half going for a run before the sun came up just so that I could be trained, so I could be ready. I was that determined that I was going to do well on this five-kilometer test on the 1st of September. And the day finally came, 1st of September, I arrived at this warehouse in Oxford, and there was 30 or so other rowers there that had been trialing. I wanted a trial as well for the boat race. And I look around, and they're all about six foot seven. And I'm looking up at these guys thinking, oh, my goodness. You know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I've always been an optimist. But at some point, you have to become a realist as well to think, have I really got a shot against these guys? Seven of these guys were Olympic rowers. Yeah, you laugh, you laugh. They, they, they come from the Olympics. Typical, the year that I picked a trial had to be a post-Olympic year. So all the Olympians were like, well, what do we do now about time? Let's, let's go and do the boat race. That would look good on the CV. So I turn up seven of them. There's eight spots plus a cox in a race. Seven of them are Olympic rowers. And I thought, you know, I, I feel that... I feel that God's called me to do this, and I've trained. I've put in all that I've, I can do. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do this five-kilometer test. So the coach gets us on our seats, on our rowing seats, and he calls three, two, one, go. And I'm not going to tell you how I got on. <laughs> A couple of weeks later, it became quite clear, actually, I probably wasn't going to get in the main boat. I know you're all hoping for me to say I got that one spot that was free and went on to win the boat race. I didn't. I didn't get into the main boat for the boat race, but I thought, well, I can either trial for the, the reserve crew, which isn't as prestigious, and get in that, or I can trial and get in the, the lightweight boat race, which meant that I had to lose 20 kilos of weight. I was currently sat at about 90, and I wasn't particularly overweight, and I had to get down to 70 kilos in order to get into this lightweight category for the race against Cambridge, which happens at Henley just a few weeks earlier than the heavyweight boat race. So I set out the challenge to do that, training six days a week, six hours a day on the water. I ate about 1,000 calories, which was horrible, and I looked like a skeleton. It really was not a good look. It did not suit me whatsoever to be that skinny. Um, and about a week before the race took place in March, I got down to the weight that I needed to be, and, and I was in the crew for the Oxford lightweight boat race against Cambridge at Henley. And we're sat on the start line, and everyone's really nervous, and I look to my right, and I see Cambridge are there, and I'm looking at these guys, and I'm thinking, guys, you know, we've got this in the back. These Cambridge guys are tiny, they're skinny. You know, little did I know actually how skinny we were as well. But they called for the race to begin, and Cambridge took the lead. And we started to come back, and then they went a bit further. And then we lost sight of them, and they won the race. <laughs> so all of that, nine months of training, six days a week, six hours a day, eating 1,000 calories a day, miserable to lose a race. And I was gutted. But I wasn't as gutted as the rest of my crew, funny enough. Because for me, so much of it was about getting in the race in the first place. 
So much of it was about the fact that I'd set out to achieve this goal. And I got there, and I did it, and I made it, and I got down to 70 kilos, and I could say that I was in a boat race. It was so important to me that I got where it was that I wanted to go. That I was ready, that I was prepared. Physical fitness, as much as I could possibly get, that whatever Cambridge would throw at us, I was ready for it. And this is what the Apostle Paul uses so many physical training analogies throughout the whole of the New Testament. There's so many of them, and I've just picked two of them out to share with you this evening. 1 Corinthians 9:24. he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Acts 20, verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, just like you get yourself ready for a physical challenge, I know there's some of us in the room now that are training for something that might be a marathon, like Simon Barber's training for a marathon in April, London Marathon. A little shout out to you there, Simon. If you want to sponsor him, he's got a Just Giving page that you can sponsor him at. But there's also some of us that are training for half marathons, 5K, whatever it is. You don't expect to show up on the day having done no training and do quite well. It's not going to happen. If you turned up on the day of a marathon and had done no training, you would be in for a tough, tough 26 miles. So you're supposed to practice. You're supposed to train. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in the New Testament, that we also, as Christians, should be training ourselves in godliness. That it's not just about the physical training, that it's about the godly training, that we should be training ourselves to be godly. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every single way because it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. As I've read this passage from Luke 12 this last week, I've had to be quite honest with myself and ask, really, am I ready? Am I prepared? Like I was prepared for this race against Cambridge, am I also spiritually prepared you know if Jesus was to come back tonight it could happen trumpets blazing as it says in Revelation if Jesus was to come back tonight am I ready for that honestly Christchurch are we ready are we absolutely hallelujah are we ready if Jesus was to come back and as I've been praying this last week I felt God just say that we need to be practicing the presence of God. We need to be practicing the presence of God. And we put in hours and hours and hours into practicing. If we want to learn the art of an instrument, we put in hours of practice. If we want to be good at academia, we put in hours of practice in writing essays. If you want to be good at something, you want to master something, they say it's about 10,000 hours that you need to put in in order to master that subject. Do we treat our spiritual life like we treat those other things? Honestly. You see, do I do that? Do I spend six hours a day, six days a week, reading my Bible, praying, getting close to God? I I don't think I do. I was challenged by this, and I want to start by asking you all a question. If you're honest with yourself, how's your relationship with God? How's your intimacy with Jesus? 
How's it really going? If God was standing here now and he was asking you, okay, tell me how it's going, what would you say? Just spend a moment thinking about that for yourself. The last few months have, have been quite good for me. And I think I would say this because it's actually been really tough. And there's been family stuff happening that has been really hard. There's been health stuff that I've been battling with. And it's kind of when you're hit from lots of different places, it's like one thing after another. And it's a spiritual battle that we're in. And it's acknowledging that we are in a spiritual battle as Christians. But it's been a hard few months it's been really tough. And every week I was walking with my old Bible. This is the Bible that I had when I first came to faith. And I was looking at this old Bible. And I saw this Bible that, that had pages that were slightly torn. It had highlight, the highlighter used all over it. It had notes at the side in the paragraphs, next to the paragraphs. It had all this stuff going on. And I looked at this Bible and I thought, this is a Bible of someone who is close to Jesus. This is a Bible of someone that has a close, intimate relationship with God. And I've got an example here of a Bible. This Bible belongs to someone who, eight years ago, took up the challenge. The vicar of this church, eight years ago, set the challenge to this church to read the Bible in one year. And this person, eight years ago, took up that challenge and has read this Bible every year for seven years. Missed one year, but has read it every year for seven years. And if you look at this Bible... You see this? It looks like a used Bible. Look at all these notes. I was looking at this, and it just made me think, wow. See, this is a Bible of someone that has intimacy with Jesus. This is a Bible of someone that is close to God. And I got home, and I looked at my current Bible after this walk, the Bible that I have at the moment, and it, it made me sad because as I looked at this Bible, it was clean, it was tidy, it still had a shine to it, the pages weren't ripped, there was no highlighter used, yeah, there was a few notes here and there, but it wasn't a Bible that looked like it was of someone that was close to God. And it made me sad, because I thought, well, what happened along the way? Where did I lose that intimacy with Jesus? Where did I lose that closeness to him? And as I was walking... I felt God speak to me, the verse from Revelation chapter 3, verse 2. And if you're not charismatic, then the word just suddenly appeared in my mind from Revelation 3, chapter two, verse 2. But it's where God is speaking to the church in Sardis. And it says, wake up, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. You see, God is writing to this church in Sardis that on the outside looked like they were an alive church. It looked like they had it all put together. And as I put that in our context, as I put that in my context, do I look like from the, from the outside, do I look like I'm alive in Jesus, but really what's going on in the inside? If we ask ourselves that same question, really what is going on on the inside? Christ church, if we ask ourselves that question, 
We're an alive church in the diocese, in the country. We're known as a big church, a church that has a lot of people, a church that has a lot of programs, a church that does a lot of stuff. But if we were featured in the book of Revelation as a church, what would God have to say about us? You see, I reckon this church in Sardis, I reckon they were possibly even quite similar to us. They were a big church. They looked great. They looked alive. But what did God have to say about them? Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I'm going to be quite honest with you all. It's, it's been a tough few months for us as a church. And I don't want to try and pull the wool over your eyes and say, and I think Christchurch are very good at doing this. We're very good at getting up here and saying, yeah, it's all going to be fine. Let's press on. Let's press on. It's all good. It's all good. And really, is that, is that really what's happening? It's been a tough few months. You know, as a staff team, we were sad that we didn't get a vicar at the last appointment. We were sad about that because it's a lot of work and it's tough. It's me being quite vulnerable telling you that because I, in the past, have got up here and said, yeah, we're all going to be okay. It's going to be fine. And it is going to be okay. And it is going to be fine if Jesus is central. If we practice the presence of God as a church, if we are ready by doing that, if we are prepared by doing that, then yes, it is going to be okay. But is it? Is that the case for us as a church? Do we practice the presence of God? Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. And that word was a word of encouragement to me, believe it or not. It wasn't a word of discouragement. It could quite easily be a word of discouragement. But it was like God was saying in the midst of it, George, you know, I know you still have a heart for me. I know you still love me. I know you're still passionate about me. I know you still want to seek that intimacy with me. But strengthen it back up. Don't let it die. Strengthen it back up. It doesn't have to die. What are you doing about it? And I think we're very good at talking. But actually, are we putting what we're talking into practice? Are we really, truly seeking God? Are we practicing the presence of God? Because as I read this passage, I, I would look at some of the commentators that would say about us being ready, keeping our lamps burning for service, and a lot of it was going out and making disciples and all this sort of action stuff. And as I read it, it made me excited. I thought, yeah, that's what it's about, making disciples. That's the evangelist in me. But then I thought, well, what's the point of making disciples if we ourselves are not close and intimate with Jesus? Because unless we are close to him, what's the point in making someone that is going to be like us? My favorite verse one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Matthew 6, 33, says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be given to you as well. If we seek him first with all of our hearts, with all of our beings, then God will add all of this other stuff as well. Seek first the kingdom of God. And we live in a strange time in the UK, in the church in the UK, in the church in the Western world, actually, where people would rather go to Moses than they would go up the mountaintop themselves. Because we think, oh, if only I could meet that speaker, or if only I would listen to that podcast, or if only I would read that book. Because we think, oh, well, by doing that, that's going to get me close to God. 
This is the culture in which we live. It's so easy to access all this stuff. And these are good things. But actually, do we know that we also have the opportunity to go into the presence of God without those things? To go up the mountaintop ourselves, to meet with Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn. Torn straight in two. Which meant that we didn't have to have a priest. Really, you don't need me. You don't have to have a priest to go to Jesus Christ. Any of us can go to him directly as we are. To cry out to him. To practice the presence of God. And one of my prayers has been these, well really since I started here at Christchurch, God give me wisdom. The prayer of Solomon, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to, to help lead the church. Give me wisdom in this situation. Give me wisdom in that situation. And, and that's a great prayer to have. The prayer of Solomon was a good prayer because God said some really good things about it. But then I look at the prayer of King David. Okay, and King David's prayer was one that was, God, I want to be in the house of the Lord forever. I want to seek you with all of my heart. That's what I care about. That was the prayer of David. And Solomon's prayer of wisdom was a good prayer, but look where it got him. And look where David's prayer got him. That he would be a man after God's own heart. And he messed up. David was a big mess up. He made many mistakes. And yet God used him for incredible things because he was a man after God's own heart. That was the number one priority in his life before anything else that he would be close to God. He would practice the presence of God. Can we say the same? And maybe tonight we need to realign ourselves. What's the most important thing in our lives at the moment if we ask ourselves that question? If we honestly ask ourselves that question, I bet for loads of us, Jesus is not number one. That's a huge challenge. Do we need to tonight realign ourselves and say, Jesus, I want you to be first. I want to practice the presence of God in my life. I want to be ready. If you were going to come back tonight, I want to be ready for that. I want to be prepared. I met up with someone a couple of weeks ago, and um, this meeting brought me to tears because this person shared a story with me of how their life a year ago, was a complete mess. How they were so distant from God. But yet in the last five or six months, something had changed, something had happened in that person's life that they just didn't care anymore about the worries that they had before because Jesus was so close to them. And they'd been lapping up all this reading, reading all of these books singing all of these songs. He said before he didn't like worship music, but now he just can't get enough. He just wants to sing these songs to Jesus, that Jesus had completely transformed this person's life. You see, we can all have that. An encounter with Jesus. That's what I long for. In this church, I long for us to have an encounter with Jesus. And sometimes in the worship, it just feels like God is so present. So let me challenge you this evening. If that is not your number one priority, then please, please make it. As I've shared the struggles that we've had as a staff team, 
Now, those are real struggles. You could look at that in one or two ways. You could say, well, yeah, no, things are tough, so I'm going to go to another church. Please don't do that. Or you could look at it and you could say, things are tough. I'm going to press in. I'm going to seek Jesus. I'm going to put this into practice. What it is that I believe, I'm going to pray. And what I want to say to you guys is, and I'm saying this in faith because I don't have the money, (laughs) but this book that this person took eight years ago transformed their relationship with Jesus. This is a powerful, powerful book that the Holy Spirit speaks life through this book that can change lives. I've seen it happen. And if you haven't got one of these, Bible in a Year, it's a great plan. Nikki Gumbel does a great series that you can listen to online. It's all, they've got apps for it and that sort of thing. But if you would like a Bible, I want to say that I want to give you a Bible. But I want to ask that if you take a Bible, that you give one away as well to someone else. The person who owns this Bible gave it away to 20 people. Not all of them have continued, but some of them have. And some of them also have had lives transformed by the power of this book, by the power of God's word. So that's the deal. I'll give you one of these for free, and God will provide the money. But then I want you to give it away to someone else as well. Buy another copy and give it to someone else that needs it. I'm going to ask us to put our hands out to receive and invite the band to come up and to play. And I just want to pray, come Lord Jesus. Come Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, you see us on the inside. You know exactly what is going on. We cannot pull the wool over your eyes. And God, I don't know what you would say if we were too featured in Revelation. But Lord, I, I come to you in repentance and ask that you would forgive and ask, Holy Spirit, that now you would come upon us. And as we were praying before the service, really felt that, that God wants to do something this evening, that like the floodgates would be opened and you would be flooded with his presence that his power would change you. Come, Holy Spirit.